Section 13 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Petrarch and Laura, Part 1. As to Vaucluse, I well know the beauties of that charming valley, and ten years' residence is proof of my affection for the place. I have shown my love of it by the house which I built there. There I began my article Africa. There I wrote the greater part of my epistles in prose and verse. At Vaucluse, I conceived the first idea of giving an epitome of the lives of illustrious men, and there I wrote my treatise on a solitary life, as well as that on religious retirement. It was there, also, that I sought to moderate my passion for Laura, which, alas, solitude only cherished, and so this lonely valley will be forever sacred to my recollections. Journal of Petrarch A literary reputation, once attained, can never be lost, says Balzac. This for the reason that we find it much easier to admit a man's greatness than to refute it. The safest and most solid reputations are those of writers nobody reads. As long as a man is read, he is being weighed, and the verdict is uncertain, which remark, of course, does not apply to the books we read with our eyes shut. Shakespeare's proud position today is possible only through the fact that he is not read. We get our Shakespeare from Bartlett's quotations, and the statement made by the good old lady that Shakespeare used more quotations than any other man who ever lived is true, although she should have added that he used blessed few quotation marks. In all my life, I never knew anybody save one woman and a little girl who read Shakespeare in the original. I know a deal of Shakespeare, although I never read one of his plays, and never could witness a Shakespearean performance without having the fidgets. All the Shakespeare I have, I caught from being exposed to people who have the microbe. I never yet met anyone who read Petrarch, but every so-called educated person is compelled to admit the genius of Petrarch. We know the gentleman by sight, that is, we know the back of his books, and then we know that he loved Laura, Petrarch and Laura. We walk into paradise in pairs, just as the toy animals go into a Noah's Ark. Shakespeare is coupled thus, Shakespeare and... He wrote his sonnets to her, exactly as did Dante, Petrarch, and Rossetti. A sonnet is a house of life enclosing an ostermoor built for two. Petrarch is one of the four great Italian poets, and his life is vital to us because all our modern literature traces a pedigree to him. The Italian Renaissance is the dawn of civilization, the human soul emerging into wakefulness after its sleep of a thousand years. The Dark Ages were dark because religion was supreme, and to keep it pure they had to subdue everyone who doubted it or hoped to improve upon it. So wrangle, dispute, faction, feud, plot, exile, murder, and Sherlock Holmes absorbed the energies of men and paralyzed spontaneity and all happy, useful effort. The priests caught us coming and going. We had to be christened when we were born and given extreme unction when we died, otherwise we could not die legally. Hell was to pay, here and hereafter. The only thing that finally banished fear and stopped the rage for vengeance, revenge, and loot was love. Not the love for God. No, just the love of man and woman. Passionate, romantic love. When the man had evolved to a point where he loved one woman with an absorbing love, the rosy light of dawn appeared in the east, the dark ages sank into oblivion, and civilization kicked off the covers and cooed in the cradle. Is it bad to love one woman with all the intensity that was formerly lavished on ten? Some people think so, and some have always thought so. In the Dark Ages, everybody thought so. Religion taught it. God was jealous. Marriage was an expediency. Dante, Petrarch, and Shakespeare live only because they loved. Literature, music, sculpture, painting constitute art. Not, however, all of art. And art is a secondary sexual manifestation. Beauty is the child of married minds. And Emerson says, 
beauty is the seal of approval that nature sets upon virtue. So, if you please, love and virtue are one, and a lapse from virtue is a lapse from love. It is love that vitalizes the intellect to the creative point. So it will be found that men with a creative faculty have always been lovers. To give a list of the great artists that the world has seen would be to name a list of lovers. The Italian Renaissance was the birth of romantic love. It was a new thing, and we have not gotten used to it yet. It is so new to men's natures that they do not always know how to manage it, and so it occasionally runs away with them and leaves them struggling in the ditch, from which they emerge a sorry sight, or laughable, according to the view of the bystander and the extent of the disaster. And yet, in spite of mishaps, let the truth stand that those who travel fast and go far go by love's parcel post, concerning which there is no limit to the size of the package. Romantic love was impossible at the time when men stole wives. When wife-stealing gave place to wife-buying, it was likewise out of the question. To win by performance of the intellect, the woman must have evolved to a point where she was able to approve and was sufficiently free to express delight in the lover's accomplishments. Instead of physical prowess, she must be able to delight in brains. Petrarch paraded his poems exactly as a peacock does its feathers. And so it will be seen that it was the advance in the mental status of woman that made possible the Italian Renaissance. The Greeks regarded a woman who had brains with grave suspicion. The person who cannot see that sex equality must come before we reach the millennium is too slow in spirit to read this book, and had better stop right here and get him to his last edition of the evening garbage. Lovers work for each other's approval, and so, through action and reaction, we get a spiritual chemical emulsion that, while starting with simple sex attraction, contains a gradually increasing percentage of phosphorus until we get a fusion of intellect, a man and a woman who think as one being. For the benefit of people with a Petrarch B and time to incinerate, I may as well explain that Professor Marsand, of the ancient and honorable University of Padua, has collected a Petrarch library, which consists of 900 separate and distinct volumes on the work and influence of Petrarch. This collection of books was sold to a French bibliophile for the tidy sum of 40,000 pounds and is now in the Louvre. I have not read all of these 900 books, else probably I should not know anything about Petrarch. It seems that for 200 years after the death of the poet, there was a Petrarch cult, and a storm of controversy filled the literary air. The accounts of Petrarch's life up to the 18th century were very contradictory. There were even a few attempts to give him supernatural parentage, and certain good men, as if to hold the balance true, denied that he had ever existed. Petrarch was born in 1304, and the same edict that sent Dante into exile caught the father of Petrarch in its coils. His father was a lawyer and politician, but on account of a political cyclone, he became a soldier of fortune, an exile. The mother got permission to remain, and there she lived with her little brood at Insisca, a small village on the Arno, 14 miles above Florence. It is a fine thing to live near a large city, but you should not go there any more often than you can help. A city supplies inspiration from a distance, but once mix up in it and become a part of it, and you are ironed out and subdued. The characters and tendencies of the majority of men who have done things were formed in the country, Read the lives of the men who lifted Athens, Rome, Venice, Amsterdam, Paris, London, and New York out of the fog of the commonplace, and you will find, almost without exception, that they were outsiders. Transplanted weeds often evolve into the finest flowers. And so my advice would be to anyone about to engage in the genius business, do not spend too much time in the selection of your parents beyond making sure that they are not very successful. They had better be poor than very rich. They had better be ignorant than learned, especially if they realize they are learned. They had better be morally indifferent than spiritually smug. If their puritanism is carried to a point where it absolutely repels, then it has its beneficent use, teaching by antithesis. They had better be loose in their discipline than carry it so far that it makes the child exempt from coming to conclusions of his own. 
and as for parental love, it had better be spread out than lavished so freely that it stands between the child and the result of his own misdeeds. In selecting environment, do not pick one too propitious, otherwise you will plant your roses in muck, when what they demand for exercise is a little difficulty in way of a few rocks to afford an anchor for roots. Genius grows only in an environment that does not fully satisfy, and the effort to better the environment and bring about better conditions is exactly the one thing that evolves genius. Petrarch was never quite satisfied. To begin with, he was not satisfied with his father's name, which was Petrarco. When our poet was fifteen, he called himself Petrarch, probably with Plutarch in mind, for the sake of euphony, he said. But the fact was that his wandering father had returned home, and the boy looking him over with a critical eye was not overpleased with the gentleman. Then he became displeased with his mother for having contracted an intimacy with such a man, hence the change of name, he belonged to neither of them. But as this was at adolescence, the unrest of the youth should not be taken too seriously. The family had moved several times, living in half a dozen different towns and cities. They finally landed at Avignon, the papal capital. Matters had mended the fortunes of Petraco, and the boy was induced to go to Montpellier and study law. The legend has it that the father, visiting the son a few months later, found on his desk a pile of books on rhetoric and poetry, and these the fond parent straightway flung into the fire. The boy entering the room about that time lifted such a protest that a Virgil and a Cicero were recovered from the flames, but the other books, including some good original manuscript, went up in smoke. The mother of Petrarch died when our poet was twenty years of age. In about two years after, his father also passed away. Their loss did not crush him absolutely, for we find he was able to write a poem expressing a certain satisfaction on their souls being safely in paradise. At this time, Petrarch had taken clerical orders and was established as assistant to the secretary of one of the cardinals. Up to his twentieth year, Petrarch was self-willed, moody, and subject to fits of melancholy. He knew too much and saw things too clearly to be happy. Four authors had fed his growing brain, Cicero, Seneca, Livy, and Virgil. In these he reveled. Always in my hand or hidden in my cloak I carried a book, he says, and thoughts seemed to me to be so much more than things that the passing world, the world of action and achievement, seemed to me to be an unworthy world, and the world of thought to be the true and real world. It will thus be seen that I was young and my mind unformed. The boy was a student by nature. He had a hunger for books. He knew Latin as he did Italian, and was familiarizing himself with Greek. Learning was to him religion. Priests who were simply religious did not interest him. He had dallied in schools and monasteries at Montpellier, Pisa, Bologna, Rome, Venice, and Avignon, moving from place to place, a dilettante of letters. At none of the places named had he really entered his name as a student. He was in a class by himself. He knew more than his teachers, and from his nineteenth year they usually acknowledged it. He was a handsome youth, proud, quiet, low-voiced, self-reliant. His form was tall and shapely, his face dark and oval, with almost perfect features his eyes especially expressive and luminous. Priests in high office welcomed him to their homes, and ladies of high degree sighed and made eyes at him as he passed, but they made eyes in vain. He was wedded to literature. The assistance he gave to his clerical friends in preparing their sermons and addresses made his friendship desirable. The good men he helped occasionally placed mysterious honorariums in his way, which he pocketed with a silent prayer of gratitude to Providence. A trifle more ambition, a modicum of selfishness, a dash of worldly wise, and his course would have been relieved of its curves, and he would have gravitated straight to the red hat. From this to being pope would have been but a step, for he was a king by nature. But a pope must be a businessman, and a real, genuine king must draw his nightcap on over his crown every night, or he'll not keep his crown for very long. Eternal vigilance is not only the price of liberty, but also of everything else. 
High positions must be fought for inch by inch and held by a vigilance that never sleeps. Petrarch would not pay the price of temporal power. His heart was in the diphthong and anapest. He doted on a well-turned sentence, while the thing that caught the eye of Boccaccio was a well-turned ankle. It seems that Petrarch took that proud, cold position held by religious enthusiasts, and which young novitiates sincerely believe in, that when you have once entered the church you are no longer subject to the frailties of the flesh, and that the natural appetites are left behind. This is all right when on parade, but there is an esoteric doctrine as well as an exoteric, which all wise men know, namely that men are men and women are women, God made them so, and that the tonsure and the veil are vain when eros and opportunity join hands. No man has ever taken the public more into his confidence than Petrarch, not even Rousseau, who confessed more than was necessary, and probably more than was true. Petrarch tells us that at twenty-two years of age he had descended from his high estate and been led into the prevailing follies of the court by more than one of the dames of high degree who flocked to Avignon, the seat of the papal see. These women came from mixed motives, for their health, religious consolation, excitement. Petrarch states his abhorrence for the overripe, idle, and feverish female intent on confession. He had known her too well, and so not only did he flee from the western Babylon, as he calls Avignon, but often remained away at times for two whole weeks. Like Richard Le Gallienne, who has Omar say, Think not that I have never tried your way to heaven, you who pray and fast and pray. Once I denied myself both love and wine, yea, wine and love, for a whole summer day. Much of this time Petrarch spent in repenting. He repined because he had fallen from the proud pedestal where he delighted to view himself, being both the spectator and the show. In his twenty-second year he met James Colonna, of the noble and industrious Colonna family, and a fine friendship sprang up between them. The nobleman was evidently a noble man indeed, with a heart and head to appreciate the genius of Petrarch, and the good common sense to treat the poet as an equal. Petrarch pays James Colonna a great tribute, referring to his moderation, his industry, his ability to wait on himself, his love for the out-of-doors. The friends used to take long walks together and discuss Cicero and Virgil, seated on grassy banks by the wayside. Men must have the friendship of men, and a noble, high-minded companion seems a necessity to prevent too much inward contemplation. It is better to tell your best to a friend than to continually revolve it. Look out, not in. Up, not down. Then Petrarch innocently adds, I vowed I would not have anything to do with women, nor even in the social converse, but that my new friends would be sober, worthy, and noble men of gravity. No man is in such danger from strong drink as the man who has just sworn off. Petrarch, with pious steps, went regularly to early mass. By going to church early in the day, he avoided the fashionable throng of females that attended later. Early in the morning, one sees only fat market women and fishwives. On the 6th of April, 1327, at 6 o'clock in the morning, Petrarch knelt in the church of St. Clair at Avignon. The morning was foggy, and the dim candles that dotted the church gave out a fitful flare. As Petrarch knelt with bowed head, he repeated his vow that his only companions should be men, men of intellect, and that the one woman to arrest his thought should be his mother in heaven. Peace be to her. And then he raised his head to gaze at the chancel, so his vow should there be recorded. He tried to look at the chancel, but failed to see that far. He could see only about ten feet in front of him. What he saw was two braids of golden hair wound round a head like a crown of glory. It was a woman, a delicate, proud, and marvelous personality. A woman. He thought her a vision, and he touched the cold floor with his hands to see if he were awake. Petrarch began to speculate as to when she had entered the church. He concluded she had entered in spirit form and materialized there before him. He watched her, expecting at any moment she would fade away into ethereal nothingness. He watched her. The fog of the cold church seemed to dissipate. The day grew brighter. 
a stray ray of light stolen, and for an instant fell athwart the beautiful head of this wonderful woman. Petrarch was now positive it was all a dream. Just at that moment the woman rose, and with her companion stood erect. Petrarch noted the green mantle sprinkled with violets. He also made mental note of the slender neck, the low brow, the length of the head, compared with the height, the grace, the poise, the intellect, the soul. There he was on his knees, not adoring deity, just her. The rest of the congregation were standing. She turned and looked at him, a look of pity and reproof, tinged with amusement, but something in her wondrous eyes spoke of recognition. They had something in common. She looked at him. Why did she turn and look at him? Don't ask me. How do I know? Perhaps telepathy is a fact after all. It may be possible that man is a storage battery. Man the positive, woman the negative. I really cannot say. Telepathy may be a fact. It may hinge on the strength of the batteries and the condition of currents. She turned and looked at him. He had disturbed her religious meditations, rung up the wrong number. She had turned and looked at him, a look of recognition, a look of pity, rebuke, amusement, and recognition. He rose and half tiptoed, half stumbled to the door, ashamed, chagrined, entranced, ashamed because he had annoyed an angel of light, chagrined because he had lost his proud self-control and had been unhorsed, entranced by the fact that the angel of light had recognized him. Still, they had never before met. To have seen this woman once would have been unforgettable. Her glance had burned her brand into his soul. She had set her seal upon him. He was hers. He guessed that she knew who he was. He was sure he did not know her name. He lingered an instant at the church door, crossed himself foolishly with holy water, then passed out into the early morning bustle of the streets. The cool air fanned his face, and the gentle breeze caressed his hair. He put his hand to his brow. He had left his hat, left it in the church. He turned to go back after it, but it came over him that another glance from those eyes would melt him as though he were bronze. He would melt as if he had met God face to face, a thing even Moses dared not do and hope to live. He stood in the church door as if he were dazed. The verger came forward. My hat, good Stefano, I left it just back of the fair lady. He handed the man a piece of silver and the verger disappeared. Petrarch was sure he could not find the lady. She was only a vision, a vision seen by him alone. He would see. The verger came back with the hat. And the lady, you, you know her name? Oh, she, the lovely lady with the golden hair? That is Laura, wife of Hugh de Sade. Of course, of course, said Petrarch, and reaching into a leather pocket that was suspended from his belt under his cloak, he took out a handful of silver and gave it to the astonished verger, and passed out and down the street, walking nowhere needlessly fast. The verger followed Petrarch to the door, and watching the tall retreating form muttered to himself, he does not look like a man who cuts into the grape to excess, and so early in the morning, too. That was a foolish saying of Lord Byron, Man's love is of man's life a thing apart, tis woman's whole existence. Does it not all depend upon the man and the woman? The extent and quality of a woman's love, as compared with a man's, have furnished the physiologists and psychologists a great field for much innocent speculation. And the whole question is still unsettled, as it should be, and is left to each new crop of poets to be used as raw stock, just as though no one had ever dreamed, meditated, and speculated upon it before. As for Petrarch and Laura, Laura's love was of her life apart, "'Twas Petrarch's whole existence. "'Laura was very safely married to a man several years her senior, "'a stern, hard-headed, unromantic lawyer, "'who was what the old ladies call a good provider. "'He even provided a duenna, or chaperone of experience, "'one who knew all the subtle tricks of that base animal, man, "'and where Laura went, there went the chaperone. "'Petrarch once succeeded in slipping a purse of gold into the duenna's hands, "'and that worthy proved her fitness by keeping the purse.' 
and increasing her watchfulness of her charge as the danger of the poet's passion increased. The duenna hinted that the sacrifice of her own virtue was not entirely out of the question, but Laura was her sacred charge. That is, the duenna could resist the temptations of Laura. This passion of Petrarch for Laura very quickly became known and recognized. The duenna doubtless retailed it below stairs, and the verger at the church also had his tale to tell. Love stories allow us to live the lover's life vicariously, and so that which once dwelt in the flesh becomes a thought. Matchmakers are all living their lives over again in their minds. But besides the gossips, Petrarch himself made no secret of his passion. Almost daily he sent Laura a poem. She could have refused the gentle missive if she had wished, but she did not wish. Petrarch had raised her to a dizzy height. Wherever she went, she was pointed out, and the attorney, her husband, hired another duenna to watch the first. This love of a youth for a married woman was at that time quite proper. The lady of the knight errant might be one to whom he had never spoken. Petrarch sang for Laura, but he sang more melodiously than anyone had sung before, save Dante alone. His homage was the honorable homage of the cavalier. Yet Hugh de Sade grew annoyed and sent a respectful request to Petrarch to omit it. This brought another sonnet, distributed throughout the town, stating that Petrarch's love was as sacred as that of his love for the Madonna, and indeed he addressed Laura as the Madonna. Only at church did the lovers meet, or upon the street as they passed. Gossip was never allowed to evolve into scandal. End of section 13.